This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A little housekeeping before we begin today's show. One, check out disneydish.bandcamp.com for a collection of other original Disney Dish shows not available on iTunes. Two, Jim and I are doing a live show in Manhattan, New York City, on Saturday, November 12th in Times Square with lunch. It's the story of the history of unbuilt Disney attractions, and we've never done this show before. Check out etccustomevents.com for more details. And three, Jim and I are looking to do an in-park event in Orlando at some time in 2017. We're testing out storybook destinations as the travel agency to host the event, and you can help out by getting a quote from them for your next vacation at storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish and letting us know how it goes. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our first show for September 2015. Let's start off the festivities for It's Almost Fall by bringing in the master of ceremonies himself, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Things are going well. All right, Jim. Before we jump into today's topic, which is a continuation of our chronological Disneyland history, picking up where we left off with Disney having just bought the assets of the Ryder Company. Before we do that, Jim, you have some news on a scurrilous rumor that's going around about Epcot. You may have heard about the height test balloons. You know, as you walked up to Epcot in the morning, you saw them to the left. They don't do that unless they're serious about doing something. Now, mind you, height test balloons don't necessarily mean that a project is a go, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of stuff out online right now about a Guardians of the Galaxy-based project that could be coming to Epcot. And I was talking with friends based out of California yesterday. This is definitely coming around the development track. None of the material that's in-house, they don't dare put the Guardian's name on it because, of course, of the master licensing agreement that Universal, uh, MCA, uh, the folks who made the Islands Adventure, got with Marvel Entertainment back in, Mm -hmm. I want to say, 84 or thereabouts. The language is very, very, very specific. Yeah, you've said Disney's looked at it a few times and had like very high-priced lawyers, and they say it's pretty much airtight. Yeah. Supposedly, Guardians has an aspect to it that would, in fact, allow theme park development. It wasn't specifically listed in the uh, in the contract, right? It was a minor character. In the- there is that aspect. I mean, the, the problem is that there is a movie coming, Thor Ragnarok. Thor Fraggle Rock? What? <laughs> Ragnarok. It's the next Thor movie that will be out next year. And the interesting thing is that Mark Ruffalo will be in this film playing his Hulk character and marching forward with these movies that there is going to be one coming where it's an all-star, where it's everybody. I mean, it's just that they're going to bring in the Guardians. They're going to bring in the Avengers. They're going to bring in all of these characters. And okay. that gets problematic because then... You now have folded the Guardians into the existing Marvel Universe. Right, right, right. So it'd be like adding Spider-Man Jr. into Spider-Man. Universal would say, 
well, obviously Spider-Man Jr., now that he's part of Spider-Man, is derivative character or whatever, or uh, an ancillary character to this main story. Ooh, that's interesting. Supposedly, there's some sort of back-end negotiation going on. It, it's been going on for the better part of a year now. The world has gotten smaller, at least when it comes to IPs. And there may be, in our now streaming, narrow-band universe, a way that Universal and Disney can share these characters in a very narrow way. At Disney right now, you can't refer to what's being built at Epcot as the Guardians of the Galaxy Project, because... Lawyers haven't signed off on it yet. They haven't finaled the language. It involves Bob Iger and Brian Roberts, the CEO of Comcast, swapping kidneys, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> like they each send a child to the other's household, right, to live. Because <laughs> they, they marry each other off like the Habsburg Empire, right? It's sort of like the first of a potentially fascinating little bend in the Orlando theme park market. What they really, really, really want for Epcot is a full-blown thrill ride right at the front of that park. The universe of energy as we know it would yeah. completely go away. I've heard it would be demoed, right? Pretty much. This might be kind of in the tradition of Frozen Ever After, where there's a very, very loose tie to what used to be there. I mean, the timetable I'm hearing for this project would be that they want to have it open in time for the 50th anniversary. So 2021, so they would, so five years, that's about enough time for Disney. Yeah. Realistically, it would take them six to eight months to demo the building. And then the turnaround of getting a coaster up out of the ground. So when will we uh, hear more? Their fiscal year starts October 1. Mm -hmm. That's another factor here. This is when the money comes through the pipeline of the parks decide how they're spending their money. And to be honest, Walt Disney World, between the Avatar project, between the Star Wars project, just wrapping up the Disney Springs thing. Give you one more Disney Springs rumor. So I was talking to a friend of mine that's a server at an unnamed Disney Springs restaurant, but a newer one. And he said that people who are opening Paddlefish mm -hmm. came by to each of the Disney Springs restaurants to solicit waitstaff. And at all of the newer restaurants, the waitstaff's collective response was essentially, yeah, good luck with that, bro. Because, because they're all doing well enough where they are, and they think that the concept for pedalfish is, I guess they got a pitch or something, that the, the concept for pedalfish is like, there's no way that's going to hold up against Boathouse, for example. That they were all like, yeah, no. <laughs> so I don't know what they're doing for, uh, for weight stuff, but interesting story. You and I, we went to the Jungle Cruise restaurant, the Skipper Cafe, and they yeah, talked Kitty, about... Yeah. Oh, God, about all the people that they recruited from high-end restaurants, really experienced waitstaff yeah. because they needed people who could spiel and really help sell this place, and nobody showed. On the heels of that, a lot of people who work in that field at on Disney property are like, no, thank you, I will stay where I am. Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're in a restaurant that's getting like, and I'm just throwing a number out here, 88, 89, 90% thumbs up rating the official guide, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the places that have come on are doing like low 90s, but some of the places mm -hmm. that are coming on like Super Canteen doing like 82, 83%. And I know it doesn't sound like a huge difference. That is the difference between, and I'm not making this up, going home with $500 a night in tips and going home with $20 a night in tips. I know for a fact that there are servers at restaurants in Disney Springs who make so much money every night in cash that they are physically escorted by Disney security 
out to their cars. They're carrying wow. that much money. Yeah, crazy. I mean, I've heard, and I don't know how, how true this is, I've heard some of them are pulling down six figures as, as servers. Just to circle back to the Epcot thing, folks, again, if you think of a, this negotiation, what's going on with this project is an A through Z timeline or the number of steps involved. We're probably at EFG, something in that space. They have their data about the high test. They have what they think is an idea that will work and something that both Disney and Universal can work with. But we're talking something that they want to have operational for 2021. So let me ask you this question, Jim. A new financial year starts October 1st. Mm-hmm. If they're going to do something, if they're going to move forward with it, will there be money in the budget next year, starting October 1st? If there would be money, it's going to be at the development of... Lots of development um, stage. Yeah. They'll see money spent in Glendale placement models and bringing folks in to do the sort of VR experience, the sort of sense of, I think some of this is also going to be conditional on waiting to see what the response is to the Guardians breakout project for Disney's California Adventure. If that's the attendance driver that they think it's going to be. Ah, okay, okay. You know, but they could they could fund some conceptual development in 2016 to 2017. See how that goes. No, 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 definitely. For now, bringing this to Florida involves a lot of plate spinning. And they have the raw data, they have an idea, and they think they have a path. Okay, so we're not going to see the demo of uh, Universe of Energy in the next 12 months. Every so often, I hear a, are you coming down to Florida soon? It's like, well, why? You really probably maybe want to go check out Energy. Moving on to our topic of the day. This is our chronological Disneyland history. Last time we had finished up and Disney had just played some hardball mm-hmm. to acquire the Disneyland Hotel from the Rather Corporation. And you said, Jim, at the time that there were some additional assets that came along with that. Yeah. January of 1988, the Disney company finally gets the okay from the Rather Corporation for $152 million. What Disney was really after was the Disneyland Hotel. It was very important to get this back as an asset. Disney actually had to get in bed with this other company, the Industrial Equity, because they had gotten in there earlier and made a significant stock buy on uh, the Rather Corporation. Disney had to agree to get in bed with these guys, and then they waited six weeks afterwards and then bought them out for $85 million. Then it's like Disney owns the entire Rather Corporation, and this includes gas and oil properties down in Louisiana. But as far as Disney is concerned, the gold of this is the 26 acres of land that Rather had an option on that were to the south, the west of Disneyland and to the south of Disneyland Hotel, plus, of course, the land that the hotel sat on itself. During the four months that it took for Disney to go from announcing the deal to the actual acquisition, their lawyers drilled way down into all of the properties. They went through every agreement that the Rather Corporation had made. And when they got to the stuff that Rather had in Long Beach, this became this fascinating set of rights. In order to understand what Disney got when they got Rather's property in Long Beach, we have to talk a little bit about the actual history of the Queen Mary. Now, this 82,000-ton, over 1,000-foot-long vessel Mm -hmm. was an active member of the Cunard Line from 1936 to 1967. It sailed out of Southampton one last time in October of 1967 and made this epic voyage that took it. Actually, they went around the Horn. Really? Yep. 
and they then arrived in, in the port of Long Beach and permanently moored there. Diners Club was the, the outfit behind this. Their idea was that they were going to take the Queen Mary and turn it into this amazing waterfront attraction. From much of 1968, much of 1969, workmen are inside of the Queen Mary. They're ripping out the boilers. They were ripping out everything below sea deck because that's where the Living Sea Museum that legendary undersea explorer Jacques Cousteau was going to curate inside of the Queen Mary. Meanwhile, the upper decks of the Queen Mary, which was where most of the first and, and second class cabins were located, these were to be converted into hotel rooms while the main lounges and dining rooms we're going to be reimagined as banquet space in high-end restaurants. I mean, one of the concepts, for example, was the promenade deck. The starboard section of the promenade was going to be enclosed and then transformed into this upscale restaurant called Lord Nelson's and Lady Hamilton's. And it was supposed to be this highly themed space that was going to celebrate 19th century uh, sailing ships. Sounds like a great idea, right? Mm-hmm. So far, so good. Okay, but in 1970, Continental Insurance buys Diners Club International. And since Continental Insurance just wants to operate a credit card company, it immediately vacates the Diners Club Queen Mary project. They are, at this point, like a year and a half out from opening, and it's half completed, and Diners Club pulls out. All the workmen walk away, and you have this half-gutted ship standing at the edge of, of Long Beach Harbor. Long Beach City Council panics. And so they reach out to a company called Specialty Restaurants and get them to agree to be the master lessees of the Queen Mary. But the deal that Specialty uh, Restaurants cuts is that they'll come in with the understanding that they are going to spend as little money as possible to get this place open to the public. Mm -hmm. So they then turn around and bring in another partner, and Pacific Southwest Airlines, which eventually, of course, became Southwest Airlines. Mm -hmm. And so the deal that specialty restaurant cuts is like, look, we'll get the banquet space open. You guys, uh, because Southwest at this point was sort of exploring an idea of we could not only sell plane tickets, we could have a rental car company and we could have a hotel. And this, this was going to allow them to move into the hotel space. So it's like, mm -hmm. okay, so PSA, you're going to take over finishing the first class and second class staterooms. You're going to change those into a hotel room. So now comes May 8th, 1971. This is when the attraction is supposed to open. Uh, they do. They make the day, but the dining rooms aren't ready, and none of the first-class rooms have been turned into hotel rooms yet. So ah. as a direct result, the Queen Mary is only open for weekends, and you basically get to walk through a construction site. And what's worse is that because so little of the work that needed to be done below decks for the Jacques Cousteau attraction, it actually gets done. The, his Living Sea, the, a museum of the mind and the senses, when it finally opens in December of 71, is only a quarter of the size that it was initially promoted to be. The city of Long Beach has spent $150 million to bring the Queen Mary here okay. and to set it up as attraction. So it's got to go forward. So it stumbles on. It takes another 11 months, but Southwest eventually gets the 150 hotel rooms open. And two years later, they finally get all 400 rooms up and running. Okay. But, but at this point, they realize we have no idea how to run a hotel, so they turn it over to the Hyatt. By 1974, it is clear that the Queen Mary, as a harborside attraction, is struggling 
which is why when 20th Century Fox comes calling, they want to build a $400 million recreational development. They wanted to build a project that would rival Disneyland in size right next door to the Queen Mary. And this is in the early 80s. This is actually 1974. Oh, 74. Okay. All right. Sorry. So so Disneyland had been open almost 20 years. Okay. Far, yeah. Sorry. You want to know what the Realty and Development Division of 20th Century Fox wanted to call this project? Pleasure Island. Oh, really? Yep. The Fox executives came up with this idea while in 1972, when they're on the Queen Mary shooting the pre-capsized scenes for the Poseidon Adventure. Ah, uh, oh, really? They're shot on the Queen Mary. I didn't know that. Yeah, all of the stuff prior to the boat tipping upside down was shot there. But you know, they're standing on the deck, looking next to the Queen Mary, and this this thing called Pier J. Okay. And it's this giant piece of real estate that's right by the ocean. And the Fox executives are like, wow, undeveloped waterfront property. Very In Los Angeles. Yeah. So meanwhile, they spent $4.7 million making the Poseidon Adventure. Money was smaller then. Jump ahead to 1973. Poseidon Adventure comes out December of 1972. Takes in $134 million in 1970 money. It's the fifth highest grossing film in Hollywood history at that time. Was the Poseidon Adventure the movie that kicked off like the disaster genre? Oh, God, yes. Oh, okay. All right. So like Towering Inferno, Earthquake, that, all that is, stuff came later, right? This is all on the heels of the amount of money that Poseidon Adventure made. And meanwhile, all of this Poseidon Adventure money is burning a hole in 20th Century Fox's pocket. They want to do something smart with this cash because this is a company that had just come back from the brink with Poseidon Adventure. People forget that in the late 1960s or thereabouts, they thought on the heels of the success of The Sound of Music and like mm. that we should just be in the musical business. <laughs> you know, films like Hello, Dolly! and, and Star almost took that studio down. They can't help but notice that even when Disney has a bad year when they release movies like... One of our dinosaurs is missing or unidentified flying oddball. That corporation still had plenty of cash coming in thanks to Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Yeah. People are handing over cash every day to go into the park, right? Yeah. 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 So they're sitting there with, with this giant wad of Poseidon Adventure money, and they remember all that oceanfront property they saw when they were looking down off of the Queen Mary. They're seeing the, the stories that are in the paper about how this harborside attraction is struggling. So they very quietly carve off a tiny chunk of Poseidon Adventure money. We're talking $240,000, and they develop a site plan. But then it gets crazier because Irwin Allen really fancied himself the next Walt Disney. And so he not only wanted his name on the project, that it was going to be Irwin Allen's Pleasure Island, but he wanted it themed around his properties, which if you remember in the 1960s, Irwin Allen is the guy who made the Lost in Space television series, Land of the Giants, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. He made a lot of crazy television that would lend itself really well to theme park rides. Yeah, it's a, I would say, kitschier. Uh, oh, uh, God, yeah. yeah. This is not highbrow uh, Downton Abbey type thing. This no, no, no. I've seen a model that was done for the park where Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, they actually included what they called the flying sub, this tiny little sub that would leave the, the sea view and could not only go underwater, but could also fly through the air. And they had actually envisioned that as an attraction at the park that you could 
get on board the flying sub. The Fox people weren't stupid. What they wanted to do was build this film-oriented amusement park. What they also wanted to include as part of the project was a city-operated marina that would have had 2,500 to 3,000 slips, in addition to a hotel, some restaurants, and some shops. And again, it was supposed to be built on Pier J, which is now known as Harry Bridges Memorial Park. It's it's this uh, area right next to the Queen Mary that is now regularly used for special outdoor events. Long Beach City Council actually got behind this project which was going to be built on 350 acres of land and then an additional 130 acres of of waterfront. And I want people to remember this as we get into the Port Disney story because there's a quote that comes out of the Long Beach City Engineer's Office. And and this is from the Independent Press-Telegraph from April 20th, 1974. After the city council had agreed to allow development of Irwin Allen's Pleasure Island to go forward, they asked somebody in the city engineer's office, how much cubic yards of landfill would be required to build this project? They said, to be honest, we don't know yet. We're, we're still in the preliminaries. Well, they, they would have to bring that in, right? Because they're not going to dredge out. Well, no. Many millions of cubic yards of fill will undoubtedly be needed, but most of this fill will be dredged up from the ocean bottom, probably from the area just beyond Long Beach Harbor's breakwater. <laughs> okay, so the environmentalists are maybe a little concerned here. Got to remember, about this same time, Disney's going head-to-head with the folks up in the Sierra Club over right. a Mineral King. Okay. Building the ski area up next to Sequoia National Forest. And here are the Long Beach City Fathers who are desperate to get somebody to come in and take over the Queen Mary Project after Dynasty Club pulled out and, and left them high and dry, so to speak. And one of the ways they finally convinced Specialty Restaurant Corporation to finally sign and and take over for Diners Club is there was language in the deal that allowed them to develop 500 acres of submerged land to the southeast of Pier J. <laughs> really? They're going to dredge up 500 acres? 500 acres, all right. And, and in effect, create hundreds of acres of new waterfront property right along Long Beach Harbor. Could you imagine how difficult that would be to do today? That's what just floors me. And here, are you high? Yeah. Because <laughs> we know the drugs were not better then. But you know, And so specialty restaurants actually did try to develop. They came to the city of Long Beach and said, hey, we're thinking about that 500 under sea acres. And we were thinking a housing development. We're thinking, you know, that, that people would really pay. And the city fathers knew that the California Coastal Commission, and these are the folks, the state-run agency that determines what gets built on tidal lands. Anything that's ocean adjacent, you have to run it by the CCC. Yeah, so anything with like a tidal component. Yeah, and the Long Beach City Council knew there was just no way the California Coastal Commission was going to sign off on this. Okay. Fox was smart enough. One of the key parts of this was mm-hmm. that city-operated marina uh, with 2,500 to 3,000 slips. And they'd done their yeah. homework. They knew that the city of Long Beach had a waiting list of 9,000 people who were waiting for dock space at this point. Really? Yeah. How long? Like, put that put that in the perspective of like uh, waiting for Green Bay Packers season tickets. How many years? Is it you're talking a, a decade or more if you're lucky. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So a long time. All right. And so here was 20th Century Fox offering to build 2,500 to 3,000 slips. Just make that part of the project, and then immediately turn the thing over to the city to operate and to collect the fees on. Wow. A turnkey operation that would have cleaved the wait time for slips for the city in a damn third. near half. Easy. Yeah. yeah. 
not only that, just and at this huge revenue source, and all they wanted was then room for their theme park, plus a hotel and a selection of shops. And so these negotiations continue well into 1975. And, and Fox, at this point, tries to sweeten the deal by saying, well, tell you what, we'll take over the Queen Mary. In addition to building this theme park and building the marina for you folks, we'll take over the Queen Mary. We'll, we'll buy out specialty retail. We'll, we'll buy out the Hyatt. We'll make this all one big high-end property. We'll make all your problems go away for yeah. one low, low price. Okay, well, fair. Yeah, it's all you have to do is sign off on this deal. So, so what happens next? How did Walt Disney World's deal with Premier Cruise Line in 1985? You remember those folks, the Big Red Boat, right? Big Red Boat people, yeah. Okay. And then Jack Rather's strong-arming the Long Beach City Council lead to the creation of the Disney Cruise Line. Believe it or not, this is the through line for this story, Len. Sadly, I think we're going to have to get to in the next installment of the chronological Disneyland. And not to, to give too much away, but if you look at the initial plans for Port Disney, Disney Sea's theme park, one of the key components of this was five slips for cruise ships. We'll get into the, the other details of this with the next installment. Fantastic, Jim. All right. Mm -hmm. You've been listening to the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. Please go on to iTunes and Stitcher and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show. Take care.